And in a really short period of time, it went from spitting and hitting to killing, right? Like you went from February of 2020 to March of 2021, where you had the shootings in Atlanta, and it was targeting Asian American women. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Sonal Shah, who's the founding president of the Asian American Foundation, a new group that invests in the AAPI community, mobilizes against hate, and advocates for better representation. And TAF starts with a billion dollars raised, the largest ever philanthropic effort to support the AAPI community. I spoke with Sonal about the career experiences that positioned her for this new role, how she helped to put together such a high-profile entity on short notice, and what she aims to do with the resources they have raised. If you're interested in successful political entrepreneurship and the other admirable qualities that my friend Sonal brings to TAF, you'll want to get to know her. So, after a word from our sponsor, my interview with Sonal Shah of the Asian American Foundation. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Sonal. Hi, Nathaniel. How are you? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Sonal Shah. I am the president of the Asian American Foundation. Prior to starting uh, the Asian American Foundation TAF, I was executive director of the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University. And before that, uh, ran the White House Office of Social Innovation for President Obama. That's some of it. I know there's a lot more, but it feels like it's just a laundry list. Yes. Uh, well, it's funny. I mean, I've noticed some people have careers that involve, you know, progressive uh, stints at a whole sequence of different organizations, some of which they start. Some people have careers where they sort of land, I don't know, like as a professor and run their career in one place. And I'm always a little intimidated trying to interview people like you, where I printed out your LinkedIn and and uh, ran out of ink, you know. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> I have eclectic interests, let's put it that way. Yes. Well, you actually have a, a really amazing career. And, and even though I know you a little bit in real life, I've been looking forward to the chance to talk to you so I could hear more about your story. Well, vice versa. I'm sorry it's taken us this long to get here. Well, I'm a patient man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so where did you grow up, Sonal? Tell me a little about your family and your background. So I grew up in Houston, Texas. My parents emigrated actually to Jersey City, New Jersey. When my dad lost his job in 1976, we moved to Houston because the oil and gas industry was he's an engineer and it was sort of where he could find a job. Um, so we moved to Houston in 1976, 77, and have been in Houston, you know, grew up there, everything from, you know, elementary to middle school to high school, and ended up going away to college at University of Chicago. But, you know, we grew up in a suburb of Houston, uh, sort of how Houston is, it's about suburbs, it was not really a city that you lived in the downtown area. My parents were super active in local community stuff, so grew up going to campaigns. They always wanted to make sure they voted and other people voted. So I sort of grew up actively engaged in understanding local politics, but local community organizations. And we spent a lot of time working in community organizations. There's some mysterious stuff 
in Wikipedia about your father in politics. <laughs> and even some claims that it's caused trouble in your career. What is there to that? We all have parents, uh, especially if you're an immigrant family who have different backgrounds. They may have political views that may be differing from yours, but um, my general perspective is my parents have always been there for the community. It doesn't matter what religious background you come from. It's actually been very important to them that they help the community. They are part of the community. They support the community. My dad started the India Culture Center in in Houston, uh, the Gujarati Samaj in Houston. Their political views may differ. I care about, you know, helping the community and making sure they're consistent about helping and that's what they do. So I think it's easy to criticize other people's backgrounds without knowing the story. And I am not going to do that to my parents and I'm certainly not going to do it to other people without understanding their stories first. That sounds reasonable. So University of Chicago economics degree and some time in London uh, along the way, and then a master's at Duke. A lot of economics there. How much of that did you end up using in your career, what you studied in school? Uh, Actually, a lot of it, to be fair. I think economics sort of gave me a framework in which to think. I don't always know that I've agreed with everything that I've learned or been a part of, but I think it's helped me understand how decisions are made and what the frameworks were. So it's been very helpful. I think what I've always tried to straddle in economics is the practical as well as understanding on the ground with sort of the theory of it. So I, growing up, for example, even though I studied economics at both London School of Economics and at University of Chicago, I spent a lot of time on the ground in communities, especially in villages in India and other places to understand sort of how is it actually applied and what actually happens. I would say that throughout my career, that's what I've tried to straddle. Even when I was at the Department of Treasury, it's much more of a macroeconomic place. But I lived in Sarajevo in 1995, working on post-conflict reconstruction, and Kosovo in 1999, working on post-conflict reconstruction. So I've just sort of been able to go in and out of on the ground to what happens in theory and application. And that's sort of what I've tried to do throughout my career. Why did you pick Treasury as a place to go out of your education? Why was that a good fit for you? That's where I got my first job. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wanted, I mean, to be fair, Nathaniel, I wanted to be at USAID and I applied for jobs at USAID. I didn't get jobs at USAID. I got a job at the Department of Treasury and at the time didn't quite know that Treasury had an international affairs division. I learned a lot, you know, it, it really sort of taking a macro frame and really thinking about how loans are given out through the World Bank or how the IMF operates. And um, so so that understanding was actually super valuable because I could I my first job at Treasury was reviewing all of the loans that were being passed out that the U.S. government was going to vote on. And it was a learning. And I didn't understand like what the government was doing and how these loans were given. So I got to dig into the details of each of these loans. So when I lived in Sarajevo, I actually understood what the questions were that were being asked and how to change the questions that were being asked. So there's a very small division within Treasury that does international affairs, about 180 people. Uh, and it is where I cut my teeth on practical applied economics and probably still one of the best uh, job jobs I've ever had in learning and the ability to, to, to really take that to action. And, you know, we were joking at the beginning about like the number of different sort of career or jobs that you've had, but you were there for, you know, the better part of a decade for seven years. It looks like that's a long time. That's like undergrad plus grad work all together. And I'm sure pretty formative for you. Why did you leave? What, what was the next thing for you and why would you, uh, you know, leave a safe career in the government? To do <laughs> it's still probably one of the most formative jobs I've ever had in the sense that it was in my 20s. I get to meet really interesting people, got to learn a lot in that process and um, had really great people who pushed me in my own thinking. Right. And asked me to think differently and my colleagues, but also bosses. So it was really I loved the job. I sort of got to the point where you had to become a political appointee in, you know, to to continue to grow at Treasury. And I didn't want to become a political appointee at the time. 
I wanted to go do something different. So I went to the Center for Global Development, uh, which was started by Nancy Bartzall in 2002, 2003. And it was a great way to sort of cut my teeth and sort of how do you set up a think tank? It was very much a startup. Even though it was a think tank, it's well-established now. In 2002, it was a startup. Like We were still looking for office space. We were building out office space. We were hiring people. We had to figure out how to do a budget for a startup. How do you bring on people? All of that stuff, like you know, the practical tools of running an organization was sort of what I got to work on because I was sort of the operational person at the center. Everything from hiring processes to building processes to understanding how people fight over offices. It was great because I learned what a think tank actually did, but without having to run the think tank myself. And Nancy Bertzall was fantastic. She's a fantastic boss. She really brought in an incredible group of people, but I learned how to do operational stuff. But, and if I understand your biography, right, that comes like right after or during your own starting up of Indie Corps with your siblings, did that experience of kind of doing your own nonprofit startup, did they help each other that you were having kind of startup experience uh, on the side as well as in your main job? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so just a quick note, IndyCorps is like a, a fellowship program for people of Indian origin to go serve in India, to do service in India for one year. We had been thinking about IndyCorps, gosh, my brother, sister, and I for about a decade before we actually launched the program. My brother moved to India and it was starting at the same time. But what was great about it, Nathaniel, is actually was learning both things simultaneously, right? So what legal documentation do you need to have? What paperwork do we have to get done? How do we do all that? My sister was a lawyer. So she was helping on the legal side, but I knew the questions to ask. And then we were able to bring on board members and reviewers and people who um, helped us interview applicants, all of who were from the development space, but people who worked with me either in government or had worked at CGD. So it sort of became a very uh, self-fulfilling prophecy of people who sort of became mentors, but also helped us along the way as we were getting started. And I think made IndyCorp a lot better because we actually had people who understood or had lived in other countries and could give us uh, insight as to how do we set up the program. And I imagine when you're currently working on, on the Asian American Foundation that you're referencing that 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 learning from even back a couple decades ago in building a startup do you do you get kind of a bug for that do you feel like you know entrepreneurship and building new organizations is something that is part of you? Yeah, I love the startup portion of organizations. I love building a brand, building out the organization, bringing on people, thinking through what needs to happen? How do you sort of become relevant in a short period of time? Like, I love that, all of that piece of it. It's sort of the, I think the piece that I um, drive to all the time. I am less the type of person that takes it to scale or growth, <laughs> largely because I very much like the startup piece of it, not the scale and growth piece of it. Not that you shouldn't do scale and growth. It's a different type of leader that wants to do that and that knows how to build the processes and the systems that will do that. So what is it about you that do you think likes the startup phase more than the, I don't know, the scaling phase, as you put it? I mean, you know, listen, you're in the same boat. So I think part of it is just sort of the the constant change of it. You're constantly having to change. You're constantly having to revise. You're constantly having to rethink. It feels like all of your brain cylinders are firing at the same time. And there's sort of a, it's, it's more exciting, it's exciting to, it's frustrating to be fair, because you feel like you can't express what you want to do fast enough. But at the same time, it's cool because you get to build something that doesn't exist. And I think that's what I like about it is the, is the ability to build something that doesn't exist and you get to define it and create it and build the brand around it. It's an exciting portion of what I like to do. It's not for everyone. I mean, some people like structure. I actually operate much better without structure. My sense is that with your new organization, you started to, and you're going to do a lot of funding of sort of social entrepreneurs. This must help you understand where they are, like to have been one yourself, to have started multiple enterprises, to kind of have been in their shoes. How, how does that play into how you think about organizing the thing that, that you're working on right now, the Asian American Foundation? 
You know what's great about being up at the at the Asian American Foundation at this stage in my career, and I'm grateful that I'm at the, at it at this stage in my career, not sooner. To be fair, is that I've I've had the experience of starting an organization, building an organization, fundraising for an organization, understanding the mistakes I made. It's always easier to step back and see the mistakes you made as you watch other people do it. I can do like sort of three things. One, I understand how to fund differently and what it is we're trying to do. Two, I have connections to people across different sectors because I've worked in the for-profit, I've worked in nonprofit with philanthropy. I think I can bring those different connections for people. And then the third is I understand the challenges that they're facing and how they, you know, what they're thinking through and what they're facing and what 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 structures they need to, to be successful. So I think it's nice to be able to have that. You always have to be careful you don't become too preachy. Because everybody sort of needs to go through the process themselves. I mean, there is a learning in the process itself, but but being able to provide a little bit of that insight is helpful. You mentioned, you know, being in, in the private sector, among other places, you spent some time at Goldman Sachs, which is another big brand and a VP there. What'd you learn there? It was sort of a startup within Goldman, right? So um, Hank Paulson, who was then the chairman, um, wanted to do more on environmental issues. This was in 2004 uh, at Goldman. Climate change, IPPCC report had come out. All of those things were happening. But he really wanted to do something. They had acquired some land in Tierra del Fuego in Chile, which then they donated to a nonprofit. And they wanted to build more, do more in that space. Um, so again, it was sort of like an adrenaline rush where you get to like internally figure out what's going to work internally within Goldman, right? So you have now the parameters of the organization you can work within and how do you build environmental initiative within Goldman that will sustain itself and, and last, and it's not just one of those flash in the pants. So one thing to keep in mind for that initiative, we were not part of the CSR efforts. We were actually part of the business itself. We were not part of the marketing dollars. We were part of the business itself. So the way we went about building the environmental initiative there is we actually went from division to division within Goldman. While Goldman Sachs is one big company and we think of it as an investment bank, there's actually like 30 different businesses within Goldman. And we had to understand what each of those businesses did. I had a partner at Goldman who worked with me throughout this where we went from business to business to understand what they did and how they did it. And then we sort of took that and broke it into four parts of what Goldman could do, right? One is how how does their research incorporate uh, environmental social governance criteria, what today is called ESG, the buildings themselves, how can the footprint of Goldman be more green? So the, the, the current building that Goldman is in, we were working on at that time. It's a brand new building, but it's a LEED Gold certified building. Um, so, so making those decisions at the time, but looking across the board at all the footprint of Goldman across the world. Um, how do we train bankers uh, and lawyers to ask different environmental questions? Uh, what were the questions they should be asking? So we started to build into the training of all bankers and, and the legal staff on how to ask environmental questions. And then how do we invest ourselves? So how do you use Goldman Sachs dollars, not client dollars, to invest in clean technologies, which is what we did. We invested in solar and wind in 2004, 2005, a lot of solar and wind. And then we also invested in the climate exchanges. So the the UK climate exchange, the Chicago climate exchange, the solar and wind investments did really well. The climate exchanges did not do so well (laughs) for policy reasons. Progressives, when they look at big companies, you know, Goldman to Google to to a number of ones that you've worked at and certainly the Exxons of the world, there's a, there's sort of a very uneasy relationship there, but companies are also hugely important players in how our society is sort of governed and run and and whether uh, things are done responsibly or not. I've listened to some of your TED Talks referencing like B Corps and different ideas for making companies more than just profit seeking. And here, obviously, with Goldman, you were working on, on how to make the company a better citizen. How do you think about that relationship between companies and society? 
Yeah, Nathaniel, that's a great question. I think there's sort of different places for different organizations, and you sort of have to know who you are in the process of it. So there's a role for advocacy, which is to become the advocate and to hold governments and businesses and others accountable. Uh, There's a role for where I think I sit personally, which is I'm more on the practicality side, which is how do we change the system itself, but by doing. So I'm the, I like the doing portion, whether it's creating IndyCore, whether it's working at CGD, whether it's working at Goldman or at Google or within the government, you know, can you make change from the inside and what is that instigation going to look like that people think differently? And you may not see that change for 20, 30 years, but that you started the process of change and thinking. And I find myself much more in that category of who I am is I'm more of sort of the practicality of like, how do we make the change? If I feel it's not going to change and I'm not going to stick around, but if I do think it has possibility for change, I think it's important. So for me at Goldman, that, that environmental initiative that we set up, it still exists at Goldman right? It didn't get, it didn't die. It didn't become a CSR effort. It's still there. So that to me was important. And so I think it's a, it's an assessment for each person as to where, where are you in the process and what is the, what is your role? Like we need everybody, right? You need the advocates to do their job. You need the practical people to do their job. You need the companies or others to do their jobs. And I think about this a lot with my cousin, for example, Jigger, who, you know, worked at British Petroleum for a long time and largely for two years, but largely because he wanted to understand the solar business that they ran. And that is what instigated his ability to create Sun Edison when he created it, which became one of the largest solar companies in the U.S. before it got bought by MEMC. But I think it's just remembering sort of which role do you want to play and recognize that we all need to be in this together for the system to change. No one person by themselves can change a system. You need everybody acting in different places. The next thing that I've noted in your career is that participation in the Obama-Biden transition team. How do you land in a political space like that? What was going on with your career that you were able to be pulled into that? Or how how did that happen? I first have to give a lot of credit to John Podesta on this. I had worked with him at the Center for American Progress when it first started in 2004. He had helped me even as I was thinking about whether I should take the job at Goldman. He was a good mentor and sort of gave me advice and helped me think through, you know, taking that position or not taking that position and sort of has always stayed a part of my life in some way, shape or form. And We were actually on a flight to Rwanda together when he had just been named the chair of the uh, transition board for the Obama-Biden transition team. On that flight, I had asked, I was like, listen, I'm at Google. If there's a way technology or others, we could play a role in helping think through how the government might think about technology. Uh, I would be interested in helping. And no kidding, three weeks later, I got a call from John Podesta that said, hey, would you like to join the transition board for the Obama-Biden transition team? And I work with Julius Janikowski on sort of thinking through how we think about technology in the U.S. government, which had not been a big part of conversation of transitions in the past. It was a great experience. How does Google Org fit into your career there? It's a little bit, it's during that time, right? Yeah. So I left Goldman to join Google.org. Sheryl Sandberg was at Google at the time. We had worked together at the Treasury Department. They were setting up .org as this philanthropy that was going to have a business checkbook and a philanthropy checkbook. Thought it was a really interesting idea of how we could approach the world if you had two checkbooks, if you could do both business and. So it's to your previous question about social impact businesses. Um, could we do both? And could we invest in, in organizations, but also invest in businesses that are thinking differently? And I uh, went to Google working on their global initiative. So I worked mostly in South Asia and East Africa. So Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and South Africa is where, you know, the Africa portfolio was. In South Asia, it was mostly India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. But we ended up mostly doing a lot of work in India. And that was sort of where I cut my teeth on understanding impact investing uh, from a, from a, from an investment perspective, but it's also where I learned about sort of civic initiatives using data and technology to give people access to information so they knew how to hold their governments accountable, how to hold their organizations accountable. So that, that sort of started in 2007, uh, which is what we were working on. And it just so happens in 2008 is when I was on this flight to Rwanda with John Podesta, actually for Google, and he was going 
going for other reasons. And we were actually uh, bringing them along with us uh, for some projects there. You know, that's how I came involved in the tech pieces in the U.S. government is sort of really understanding what it took to make that happen and how do we apply that. And what's funny is up till then, most of my career was international. Then when I came into the Obama White House, most of my career since then has been domestic. How was Google as a place to work for you? (laughs) It was a startup that was figuring out scale. Um, I will say, I think it was probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. Everybody seems to think that they know philanthropy or how to help people better because they made money. And I think we have to sort of put a check on ourselves. Just because you make money doesn't mean you know how to change society. It means you know how to make money or you, you know, know how to build a product. So I would say it was really difficult because every single person that we ran into, other than .org itself, like in the company, uh, there were a lot of engineers, to be fair, that we worked with that were super helpful to us and helped us look at data in new ways. But there were a lot of executives who thought they knew better because people were stupid that they hadn't solved their own problems or these problems hadn't been solved. You know, it was, it was challenging because you understand that the world is fairly complicated. <laughs> it's not quite as simple as build a product and it's going to change the world. No, a theme in almost all of these social impact worlds is when you try to measure actual effect of programs, it's extremely hard to find it. Things are fairly intractable, even when you can, when you know that you've affected a lot of people's lives for the better, when you, you have the those experiences, like with your IndyCore, you, you see, uh, you see change happening in the micro. It's very hard to measure in the, ma- in the macro, isn't it? And it's long-term. I mean, I think we have timeframes that we want to do in one year, six months, two years, but change takes 10, 15, 20 years, right? You might invest in something. You might, you know, plant a tree that's going to grow 30 years later. That's really when the benefit's going to be. And I think what what I found, I think, in philanthropy, especially most recently, is that people don't want to think in the long term. They want to see everything happen in short-term results. It's like, well, why didn't this happen? And again, it's one thing building a product and having it scale, like you can build your little product and it can scale, But human beings are not products. Human beings are complex systems, complex people, complex areas that we live in. And this idea that we try to turn them into a product is sort of um, and assume that that's how change is going to happen is ridiculous. Also, if you're sitting there striving to plant trees and you're planting 20 trees, someone else might be knocking the forest down behind you or burning it. Yeah. Right. And we don't think that we don't think about that. It's like you're building, you're planting all these trees, someone else is burning it, or someone needs it for firewood, or someone else needs it for other, you know, there, there's a battle taking place. There's so many reasons why that tree not might not be standing. And it might not be just because the government was all bad. It might be for other reasons. The community needed the wood. Understanding complexity is actually more important than just simplicity. You spent time in the White House also basically doing a startup, it sounds like. What was that? And how was that? So, I mean, the analogy of the tree planting is actually fairly interesting, you know, even within the White House. It was a lot of seeds that were planted of thinking about innovation within government and how do we think differently. Uh, from a comms perspective, we want to talk about, you know, the funds that we we established, the Social Innovation Fund or the Education Innovation Fund or the Workforce Innovation Fund. Like those are all real funds and those were that was money. Um, what I think we probably did more than anything else is change a mindset that government can also think differently and be innovative and creative and solve problems. So when you look at like the USDS, United States Digital Service, or you look at the innovation fellows that came into government, all of that was real stuff. It made a difference in communities because we started to change the way people were thinking about their work. And that made a huge difference. And and that I think is like we planted a lot of trees and what we're seeing is a lot of those same folks now back in government or working in city governments or working in state governments. Like that's what we started to see. And I think that's what innovation does. You just have to be willing to not see all the results in the first year or the second year, but you might see it in seven years. Well, that was the Office of Social Innovation and Civic Partici- Participation, Participation yeah. among other things. Yeah. 
What what happened after you left? Did Trump maintain that? Did it go away? Is it back with Biden? What's the history going forward of that of that thing that you were working on there? That office did not stay within government, but there were some things that got maintained within government. So the U.S. Digital Service continued to remain. The Presidential Innovation Fellows continued to remain. A lot of folks that we had worked with in government, especially in the civil service side, continued to do their work on social innovation, but they sort of didn't talk about it publicly because it was not politically popular to talk about, right? What happened and what's been fascinating since, and this is not something we foresaw in any way, shape, or form, Nathaniel, is like, Every university across the country started to build social innovation, social entrepreneurship, tech innovation, sort of programs to solve social problems. So I think what we did is we inspired people on the outside to do a lot more. And it was amazing. Even when I started the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation, it's like I was amazed when we did the research as to how many universities had it as how big it had actually become. And how many young people in the country wanted to make social change and were looking at whether it was business, whether it was social entrepreneurship, just different approaches to solving problems and wanting to be a part of a solution and, and sort of take a risk, it just, which is what I think what we need to do in the world anyway. You mentioned the Beck Center. Uh, what was the importance of starting that and uh, spending a number of years trying to build it? What were you up to there? What did you accomplish? At sort of a very micro level, it was training students to think differently about solving social problems. You know, how do you look at data differently? How do you apply for solving a problem? How do you work with an organization to help them think through what it looks like to solve problems? Like more than anything else, what we taught people was a skill set of how to think differently and how to, how to use that thinking and application. So um, many of our students are all around the world, some at the UN, some in their local governments in other countries, some in nonprofit organizations, for-profit organizations across the board in different places. But I think at the very micro level, like helping students think differently and the system within Georgetown to push the thinking about how do we teach classes in a new way? How do we make a practical learning lab? And it's funny when after we started, how many people within Georgetown created sort of learning labs um, and sort of innovation programs even within Georgetown, which was great to see. So we sort of got to, you know, infuse the system there. And externally, I think we got to really talk about sort of how do you do impact investing? How do you actually measure impact? How might you think about it? What are the pros and cons of it? What are the challenges that you will face if you don't think through it well? And similarly, um, which is some conversations that we're having today in the world is like, how do you assess technology for ethics? Right? How do we make sure we're ethically looking at technology? Not just technology is going to solve the world's problems, but what are the ethics around it? Who gets that data? How do you get that data? What is that data used for? How do people know what their data is being used for? Who's going to use it? Those are types of questions we started to do, and I think they're doing a lot more of it today. Another thing that intrigued me about you is, you know, when there were like 24, 25 Democratic candidates in, in 2020, you went to work for one of them, Pete Buttigieg. Why him? How'd you get pulled into that? And how was that experience? I did look at a lot of the candidates that were in the field at the time. I listened and I read their books. I listened to their, you know, speeches as they started, you know, when they, when they launched their campaigns. And more importantly, I felt like I needed to get engaged uh, more actively. I'd always been a volunteer on campaigns. I'd always sort of actively engaged from a volunteer perspective. This time I wanted to be in the game itself. And I did. I got involved because I was like, I can't sit aside and watch democracy. I needed to be in the democracy itself. So I joined Pete's campaign because I had read his book. I had watched his speech and I really liked sort of the fact that he had grown up in Indiana, the fact that he had um, just a different perspective of how he thought about freedom, democracy, security from a human perspective. And I called up everybody I knew working on that campaign and asked if I could volunteer. And then when I saw that he was looking for a policy director, I asked if I could be a part of that. And what was that experience like? I spent time on one uh, presidential on Hillary's first one as chief technology officer. I found it to be 
quite a learning experience, not an easy thing to be in the senior staff of a, of a presidential. Pete came very close to getting the nomination, which as a you know moderately sized town mayor is almost unthinkable. But he did bring an enormous amount of intelligence and uh, you know ability to talk and and thoughtfulness to it. What was the emotional ride like for you? I mean, to be fair, all campaigns are chaotic. It's sort of like the ultimate startup. It's like you're starting at zero and you're building as fast as possible and then you're breaking down as fast as possible. So you go from uh, not sure if we're going to have enough money, not sure if we're going to have enough money to, oh my God, we have all this money. Can we actually win Iowa? How do we staff up in Iowa? I think we went from 25 to 450 staff within like a three month period. How do you build the infrastructure to make that happen? So I think that ride was sort of really interesting. When I got there, we had written one policy. We wrote 27 policies within a four-month period, pulling a team of 5,000 volunteers together to help us drive and write policies for the mayor. So he could, he was intelligent in himself. So like, you know, there was in the, like, there was an education process, but like he, he had a lot of gut instincts himself and he was super, super talented in that. But making sure he knew what the nuances, what each positions might be and how he might phrase it. He came up with the phrasing himself, to be fair, but he's, you know, he's great. He asked us really tough questions. He asked us great questions. We were probably the only team that always got like two to three hours of his time a week, which is not easy uh, when you're on a campaign. But he asked us really great questions and then, you know, read every policy, you know, probably three times because he wanted to understand it and, and would tell us you should talk to this person or you need to make sure this is happening. So I thought it was such an interesting learning experience. It was chaotic. It was a mess sometimes, but I met a lot of really smart young people with a lot of dedication who I didn't, I wasn't doing what they were doing in my twenties. And I sort of have a lot of admiration for. Do you think he's a good cabinet choice? I think he's a great cabinet choice. I think he's doing a good job already. I think uh, the hard part will be implementation once the money comes through. What I really appreciate about Pete is he hears everyone's perspectives before he gives a view and he thinks about it and he's trying to absorb what's the question that's being asked versus, you know, how someone might be asking a question. And in today's world, it's not so easy to... Um, to not show what you might think on your face, but to actually absorb it, understand it, and answer it in a, in a very thoughtful manner. And I think that's what he's very good at. And I, he continues to prove that. And he continues to prove that you know he understands how to approach communities. I think more than that, because he was a small town mayor, because he saw these issues very much at the very local levels, he understands what communities needs and what the needs are. And he understands the practicalities and the challenges of implementation. You've been in a lot of different arenas. One arena you've never tackled, to my knowledge, is being a candidate for office yourself. Have you ever thought about it? Mm, I've been asked about it. I, I don't know that I am interested in doing that. I think I like helping others. I think I like doing the things that I do in the community. Um, I'm not sure. That sounds like a, a plan to do it. <laughs> you know, the way. <laughs> that sounds like a very DC political question. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, I'm, I'm good where I'm at right now. I like what I'm doing. Speaking of what you're doing. It came to almost everybody's attention that there was a new foundation that you were running. Nobody starts a new enterprise with three presidents introducing it. You know, Bush, Obama, and Clinton introduce it to the the current president and have have time in the White House and say you're coming out with 125 million. Uh, raised and then up it to a billion. This doesn't happen. I, I don't know of another example of that. Maybe you do. But what's going on behind the scenes here? How do you make something like that happen? Um, I, you know, first of all, I think the moment mattered, Nathaniel. Like the fact is like for a year and a half, there had been a lot of anti-Asian hate. Um, communities had been targeted, parents, children, older community members, you know, something we hadn't seen in a long time. It's like people targeting the elderly and beating them up. When you see those visuals and when you hear about it and when you know about it, I think it really mattered that we should do something. And in a really short period of time, it went from 
spitting and hitting to killing, right? Like you went from February of 2020 to March of 2021, where you had the shootings in Atlanta, and it was targeting Asian American women. And two to one, the people that were getting addressed or affected were women um, on the anti-Asian hate. So recognizing that the moment mattered, I think the community has also wanted to recognize that they needed, they wanted an entity that was stepping up for them. And that was, you know, that they were a part of, you know, they wanted to be a part of because they saw what was happening around them. And I think it was important. And so I think then when we reached out to our colleagues in the different president's offices and different places, like they had been watching the same things we had, and they felt also compelled to do something about it. Many of them had had cabinet secretaries or staff that were Asian American. President Clinton started the first White House Asian American AAPI initiative. The timing mattered on this. And I think it also showed that the politics and political figures also cared about it, including the president, the current president of the United States, President Biden. We talked to everybody we know. <laughs> we made it a very important part of the conversation. But also um, in the fundraising side, our board stepping up for $125 million themselves made a huge difference, right? When, when your board says they're going to put money in, then everybody else says, oh, well, if you're willing to commit as a board, we're willing to step in with you. And again, corporations and foundations also were thinking about how do we help Asian American communities? So I don't understand still the founding story. Whose idea was this? Who are the people in the room? How do you land in this role? What got the ball rolling at the very beginning of this? Yeah. Jonathan Greenblatt from ADL got the ball rolling. He reached out to the to the Asian American community in February of 2020 to say, we at ADL are seeing a lot of anti-Asian hate. Do you all want to do something about it? Uh, Lee Lu, who's our board chair, a former Chinese dissident um, and now the chairman of um, Himalayan Global Capital, called up people and said, we need to do something. And uh, the current board, uh, you know, um, mine is Sheila Marcella, who came on in um, March of 2021, sort of came together and said, we need to do something. We should do something about anti-Asian hate. Uh, we should really build up an organization that is doing what ADL does. They said the first thing we need to do is hire a CEO. In August of last year, I was, you know, when everybody else was locked down, I was traveling around, uh, meeting the different board members, and I joined in, I accepted in October of last year um, to help set up an organization, which I would have started in January. But because of what was happening, we started to do work early on to understand what was going on with the anti-Asian hate and, you know, uh, started to talk to organizations, understand what their challenges were, start to do research and background. That was the start. And then I joined January 2nd and, um, and then basically March 17th happened. We had one board, we were actually at a board meeting that day and the shootings happened and we're like, okay, we have to launch. We can't wait to have a strategy. We have to launch the organization. So from March 17th through May 3rd, which is when we launched, we got a website together. We pulled together a team to, you know, get a strategy together, a base strategy together. We got the board to commit to the money. One of our board members, Joe Bay, came, uh, who's the CEO, co-CEO of KKR, said, listen, if we can raise the money, if only 0.5% of resources are going to Asian American communities, we should raise more. And so we started to call foundations, we started to call corporations, and the board got actively engaged in making those calls. Who's on the board? You've mentioned a few people, but like these are people who are highly prominent running gigantic enterprises in their own right. This is not a local group of citizens. No, they are Lee Lu, chairman of Himalayan Global Capital, who's, uh, who's our board chair, Jerry Yang, co-founder of Yahoo, or founder of Yahoo. Peng Zhao, CEO of Citadel Securities. Um, Joe Bay, co-CEO of KKR. Joe Tsai, co-founder of Alibaba. Jonathan Greenblatt, um, who is uh, CEO of ADL. And Sheila Marcello, who was the founder of Care.com. And all of them have full-time jobs and all of them give probably about 15 hours a week to working on TAF. What's a board meeting like with with uh, executives that are used to being the boss of all? How do you wrangle them? 
You know, good thing is they're all very focused on the anti-hate work and are really focused on what can we do and how do we do it. Keeping them focused is making sure we're talking about the issue that we need to do. How do we think about it? But there's always great questions. Some of the questions which are always interesting is like, is that the right amount of money? Is money going to solve this problem? Is, you know, have we looked at that problem from a different angle? Who else should we be bringing into the conversation with us? How do we make sure that they're connected to the right groups of people? So like they sort of bring a very operational perspective to uh, what could also in philanthropy be a theoretical conversation. Is this a lot of money? Like when I talk to uh, people running small AAPI groups that are functioning on two or three million dollars a year. Obviously, this is a gigantic sum. When you think about government spending in an area of importance to society, a billion dollars is not as big. And this is over a number of years. Just from the standpoint of money raised, obviously, you can do a lot. How do you see this, what appears to be a gigantic sum? Yeah, I would think about it in probably two ways. The way I would think about it is from a purely monetary perspective, it's a lot of money for the Asian American community, right? Just the community itself. And when you think about all of the foundation resources out there, they only get 0.5% of foundation resources. So from that perspective, it's a lot of money. And we think there's more out there to be gotten, but it's for a community of and, and a community of people that haven't gotten it before. The bigger thing that we should talk about is I, I think sometimes in philanthropy and in, in business, we all talk about the money part of it. What we don't talk about is the impact part of it. And this is sort of my bug in general, which is we should always be talking about what impact the money is having and not whether we have a lot of money because we could have a lot of money and no impact. Um, uh, hence government sometimes. But <laughs> I think what you really want to think about is, you know, how can we have the money have the largest impact possible? So when I think about the Social Innovation Fund, for example, in the Obama administration, it was only $50 million. But the impact of it was we got a lot more people starting to think about how do we help organizations grow and scale and what are ways that we can help them differently than what we have been doing in the past or how do we ask different questions so i think what we have the ability to do is not only infuse a lot of money into the asian american community but we can have a real impact in the community itself and show how we can work with other communities to have similar impact how are you going to spend it right i'm sure everyone's asking that just talk about process a bit like who's going to get this and how are you going to make make those decisions? We have four areas of work that we, three areas of work that we definitely work in right now. So one is anti-hate, research and data and education. And then there's sort of increasing philanthropy for Asian American communities. So I'll I'll hold that because that's sort of cross-sectional across the board. But on anti-Asian hate really is thinking about who are the organizations working on anti-hate, but more importantly, helping us get to belonging. So hate in itself is one thing, but really addressing how do Asian American communities belong in the United States is really important. Education, making sure that AAPI education is part of the education system broadly, and how do we work? This this requires us to work with um, other diversity of communities to make sure it's, it's a consistency across the board, not one or the other. And then the last is research and data. AAPI communities are 40 different ethnicities, 20 different Pacific Islander communities. And to understand what we need to do for the community, we actually need to disaggregate that data and understand how to use that data differently to understand each of those different communities. So that is sort of what we are going to focus on. In each of those areas, we have to go very deep. So how do we understand what we need to do in education? You know, do we fund advocacy organizations? Do we fund creation of educational materials? What are the things that we should think about in research and data? Do we fund the Indian American community research? Do we fund broader AAPI community research? Do we work with census data? There's different pieces of that that we are working through. So we're building out those strategies now. And the anti-hate really, like I think the thing that we're going to focus on is next week, the president is releasing the origins of the virus study. And we're getting ready for it because we're building a toolkit for mayors and governors and community organizations. We're releasing data standards. So everybody's collecting the same data on hate incidents and um, hate crimes. And then we're going to release a round of grants to make sure we're building community support for community organizations that can handle the hate incidents coming up. So 
we're continuing to do grants, but at the same time, we need to build a strategy to make sure we're leading towards an outcome. And I'd say what you're probably going to see is a series of grants, but we're going to work on the strategy piece of it simultaneously. So do you model yourself after an existing foundation or two? Are you going to accept grant applications all throughout the year or on a particular schedule? How are you going to evaluate them? What what are they going to be the criteria for funding? I mean, it's a good question, Nathaniel. I think what we're going to do right now for the first year until the summer of next year, we're not going to accept grant applications. We're going to go find organizations and we'll talk to people. We're talking to people along the way. It doesn't mean we're not talking to different organizations. If people happen to come to us, we do talk to them and we're keeping track of all that information and data. But um, what we're going to do for the long term is we will figure out if, how we're going to accept applications. That's still work that we're working through. Uh, for now, for the next year, we're not going to accept um, unsolicited applications. We'll reach out to people. If I were running a, you know, an anti-hate Asian group right now, nothing would have been more occupying my attention than your announcement and the possibility of getting funding from you because I would be working my ass off to raise a couple bucks and here's this pot of money. You know that arena, I think, for, for a long period of time. Can you give some examples of groups that you've already started to fund or, and how that, you know, kind of what scale you're working at at this point? So even at the launch of our organization, we funded Asian Americans Advancing Justice, the whole group we funded at a million dollars. We gave a million dollars to Stop API Hate. We also gave a million dollars to NAPOF, Asian American Women's uh, Forum. We have given um, half a million dollars to the Asian American Education Project based out of California. That was our sort of initial round of grants that we have given money to uh, ADL. Now, the next round of grants, we'll be doing another four, four to four and a half million dollars worth of grants coming out in the next, you know, probably two to three weeks. That will be specifically also focused on anti-hate. And we're going to expand that. So we're going to give to local organizations, uh, not just national organizations, but we're also going to give to some national organizations, including South Asian organizations, because South Asian communities have been dealing with hate for almost 20 to 30 years. So making sure that we're sort of expanding the Asian American pie, but also focusing in at at very local levels and on on helping organizations locally too. How do you make sure you fully capitalize on the moment. A lot of this, as you mentioned, when we started talking about this is there was so much visibility around so many horrible things going on that may wane as other things, you know, come up on the radar. The ACLU had enormous fundraising around Trump and his misdeeds on civil liberties. How do you make sure that you get as much in the door so that you can continue to function in an important way for a decade or two or however long this is needed. Yeah, I think about it in sort of two ways. One is sort of like there's the moment and then there's going to be series of moments. So part of the reason is I don't think this moment's going away that fast as I think the as the anti-China rhetoric continues, I think this moment's going to continue. And I think with the Afghanistan crisis, it's going to continue to keep a focus on Asia for that matter. So it's sort of partially like pushing the national conversation while also helping local organizations. And that's sort of what we're working on balancing towards, which is we had a great launch. Now what's the next stage of work that we need to do? And then how are we going to keep this issue on the radar screen? How do we work with corporations so it's on their radar screen? How do we work with foundations so it continues to be on their radar screen? So we're not going to let up. We're going to work both behind the scenes, but also publicly. And I think what we'll try to do in the next round of grants when we put out is also do a public event around it. So it continues. You know, while the anti-Asian hate incidents are not on TV, they continue. There were some incidents in New York. There have been incidents in Oakland. Um, this continues. Parents are afraid to go to the community organizations because they're afraid to step outside their doors. Like, this hasn't gone away. Students are afraid to go to school because of bullying. So we have to keep that pressure up. And so we're also building a comms function that's a rapid response comms function that's out there constantly reminding people. It sounds like there's plenty of work to be done building this out internally. There just always is at the beginning of an organization. You talked earlier about enjoying the startup phase more than 
the scaling up and kind of running it phase? How will you know when you want to move on? (laughs) How do you think about successor planning and things like that, even though it's way too soon? I always think about successor planning, just to be fair. I think when I start an organization, I think about what does the successor look like? Because I do think it's important that as you're building the organization, you're building it for a successor as opposed to it could easily be the startup and then the startup dies because the person leaves and it's all built around the person. So the way I think about this now is like, how do we make sure this is about TAF and not the person who founded TAF? How do we make sure that the person speaking for TAF is not just me, but we're also building up our cadre of people that whether it's organizations or others that could be speaking up for TAF, that the institution itself stands more than the person and the people in it, because that's what matters. And that's, that's why it's important. So this next round of funding will be very much about like making sure that's about the institution. And then I think this is going to be an interesting, Nathaniel, this is going to be an interesting one because we actually, you know, in, in most institutions, you start off and you raise money. We started off and raised all the money. And so now we have to work backwards. And so we have to get to scale pretty quickly. I don't know what my timing is, but I do think like recognizing that we're going to have to build processes and systems pretty quickly because we're at scale and we have to sort of operate at scale. That's very fortunate. Yeah, I can't um, leave the interview without asking you one question at least about uh, former President Trump, because he so much changed the environment around discrimination. He sort of gave uh, some of the dark forces license to say and do things that we really shouldn't be doing as a country. He fanned the flames of hate quite deliberately in certain cases. He also might be back as president. Like we don't know yet that we're out of the woods on that. He certainly continues to have influence. How do you think about living in the time of Trump, whether president or ex-president, which obviously affects your job right now? What the four years showed is it's very easy for all of us to fall into nativism as a country. We can be like, it's about me, not you. It's about you, not me. And we have to remember that for democracy to work, and I think this is the issue that I took away in the four years of Trump, is like how fragile democracy actually is and how quickly we are willing to walk into the tropes that get put out there, which pit all of us against each other. I think that what is needed in the next years to come and what we've learned about ourselves is we need courage. We need the courage to work together. We need the courage to think hard about what democracy means to us and not fall into these individual tropes of outsiderism or uh, the other. And it takes hard work to get there because sometimes you have to look beyond yourself and look at somebody else and saying, how do I work together? Even if we don't agree on something, how do we do something? Even if uh, you don't look like me or you don't act like me or you don't eat like me, but we have to find those moments to do that. And Personally, I think it's going to take a lot of black, brown, Asian communities to come together and work together and not get pitted against each other because it is easy to fall into those tropes to be pitted against each other. Model minority myth for the Asian Americans pits us against the black community all the time and the Latino communities. And we should not fall into that. Like that is not an okay way to do it. And so reminding ourselves to have the courage to work together with others is probably, I think, what I take away from four years of President Trump. I just don't, I don't think that's who we want to be as a nation. It's not how we stand up as a democracy. And frankly, we are better than that. We have to find our better angels. Yeah, one of the things I love about this country is seeing peoples who come from home countries that are enemies in the world being shoulder to shoulder here. Absolutely. You know? And, and that's just a remarkable thing about the United States at its best. I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? It's like it's every time I traveled overseas or every time I worked overseas in post-conflict countries, it's the thing that I was always the most proud of being American is that I had friends from different parts of the world with different backgrounds, with different religions, and it was all important to be an American. And I rem- I can't remember how many times I used to get asked if I was American or not. And I proudly would always say, I am American because I belonged in this country. I belonged with others. And I think that is the best of who we actually are. And we just shouldn't let the forces that tell us otherwise get in the way of it. I agree. Is there a question that I didn't ask that you wish I had? 
No, you asked too many questions. I'm still trying to think through all the questions you asked. No, this is a really fun conversation, Nathaniel. That was a fun conversation. And thank you for asking these questions. Well, thank you for doing all the things that you've done and have yet to do. It's uh, amazing to follow your career. And uh, I wish you the most luck with this organization, which is crucial at an important time. Yeah, it's a it's a really great time to be here. And like none of this happens without friendships and people you've worked with in the past. It's easy to say you do this all on your own, but your organization is as successful as the people you work with, but also the people who help you along the way. So, um, so much of the success of this is also friends. That was Sonal Shaw. Sonal is at taaf.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. <laughs>